Welcome to Authors Revealed. I'm Becky Anderson. Scott Pelley is here with his debut book. It's called Truth Worth Telling, a reporter's search for meaning in the stories of our times. You'll remember, Scott, he is on 60 Minutes and was the CBS anchor for the Evening News. Scott, welcome to Naperville and to Anderson's Bookshop. Great to be with you, Becky. Thank you so much. Oh, it's our pleasure. We are so excited because this is your debut book, Out in the World. It's been out about two weeks now, so um, and it's it's absolutely fabulous. I enjoyed reading it so much, and I could see so much of. I've watched you for years. You know, whether you were a White House correspondent or you were a war correspondent, whatever you were doing, this book really is is a part of you, but so much about these other stories. And so I'm, I'm so excited that it's out in the world because I think you've said a lot. And I think I would like you to just address the fact that, you know, as a bookseller, we talk about stories and how important they are. And tell me what story means to you in telling these stories in, in this book in particular. Oh, story is everything, yeah. right? Don Hewitt, who created 60 Minutes, always used to tell us, tell me a story. Um, you, you'd go into Don's office and you'd say, Don, climate change. We got to do a story about climate change. And he'd go, that's an issue. Tell me a story. And what he meant by that was, you know, find a great story about a person or a development that illuminates all of climate change, but it's a great story. And so when I sat down to write this book, I wanted to write a memoir, Becky, but I didn't want to write a memoir about me. I didn't right. think anybody care about that, but it occurred to me that I had met the most fascinating people around the world who discovered the meaning of their lives in some of the historic events of our time. So I wrote about them instead. Yeah. And you know, when you talk about the, the truth worth telling, I mean, the, the title of the book, it, it really, stories like this do tell the truth. And when I think about story overall, you can think about fiction or even nonfiction, but it is the truth and it fills in those sometimes the emotional gaps you wouldn't get from just straight fact. Well, the yeah, reason I stories, think yeah. this book may be helpful to people at this moment in time mm -hmm. is that we are really living in a time when the truth can be made to seem false right. and lies can be made to seem true. And I'm trying to remind people in this book about values and the values that I found in these people that I met uh, during these historic times. And also to remind people that there is such a thing as yeah, truth right, and it's right. verifiable and it's a solid, durable thing. And it is something that we can hold on to. Yeah, for sure. And so, so why the book now? You kind of answered that already, but I hope this won't be your last book. I don't know. You know, yeah. this was a secret project. Well, oh, I didn't okay. tell anyone but my wife that I was writing okay. a book because I didn't know if I could and I didn't know if I would enjoy it. I didn't know if I'd get a hundred page in, yeah. pages into it and think, oh God, I can't do this. Yeah. But uh, the, the truth is I loved it. I couldn't Good. stop. Yeah. I couldn't stop. I threw my laptop open one day. I had an idea for an opening line. This book's 130,000 words and I had an idea for the opening, say 10 words, and yeah. I just started typing. Wow. And you know how it is. It's just one word after another. Yeah. One of the things I really enjoyed about writing the book was the research. Because the funny thing is, when you're an eyewitness to a momentous yeah, event, yeah. you really don't know very much. 
you just know what you saw, like when I was standing at the World Trade Center on 9-11 and the buildings came down. Well, I was able to do the research for this book uh, with all the engineering studies that have been done in the decades since then about why and how the buildings fell right. down, going through all the 911 calls, going through all the uh, FDNY, Fire Department of the City of New York, radio transmissions, even some that had been lost for years right. and were discovered later. And when I put all of that together, what I saw makes much more sense to me now. Right. And so um, that's those are some of the things I really enjoyed about writing the book. Yeah, and with so many authors, when you talk about research, and you know, as a journalist and, and reporting what's happening right now, you don't have that background information. And as you mentioned, the, even the firefighters at 9-11 didn't know what really had happened. They were just rushing in to save as many people as they could. So that research, and so many authors say they get down that rabbit hole. It's hard. You know, they love the research part. Did you really enjoy researching these oh, stories that you had reported on? Just endlessly fascinating yeah. to me. Uh, things that I read in military studies of Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm -hmm. I went to Afghanistan 10 times. I went to Iraq 26 times. Wow. I saw a lot. Mm -hmm. But when you read the scholarly military studies of particular battles and the complexities of um, counterinsurgency and learning what these people are all about, what the culture's all about, uh, I learned so much more about what it was I'd been seeing all yeah. that time. You know, no steel tower in the history of the world had ever collapsed because of fire. That's why all those firemen were in there. They had no experience. None of the fire chiefs had any experience with a tower falling down. It never happened in their experience. And so uh, doing the research on how that happened was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I love the way you start the book with a quote in the beginning. And it says, in these times, don't ask the meaning of life. Life is asking, what's the meaning of you? And I thought that was absolutely perfect because you, well, explain to us why you chose that and, well, and, yeah. That's from an essay that I wrote for the CBS Evening News mm -hmm. when I was yeah. managing editor of the CBS Evening News. We were in Paris. This was uh, the day after the ISIS attack there, as you recall, killed 120 innocent mm -hmm. people. And I was standing in the rain on a cobblestone street where Parisians were setting up just a makeshift memorial and men, women, and children were carrying candles and laying them at this memorial in the street. And they all had this perplexed look on their face, a look of bewilderment. Mm -hmm. And after all these years of reporting, it occurred to me I had seen those people before. Yeah. I had seen them at the World Trade Center. I had seen them in Oklahoma City when the Murrah Federal Building was bombed. This look on their face of, you know, What's the meaning of life? If something like this can happen, what's the meaning yeah. in life? And it occurred to me that we're asking the wrong question. Don't ask the meaning of life. Life is asking, what's right. the meaning of you? Right. In other words, when you're confronted with these events, what is it about yourself that helps you and others overcome them and make the best out of them? That's why these chapters in the book are titled Gallantry, Valor, Duty, Selflessness. Those qualities that we all hope are within yeah. us shown by these people during difficult times. Yeah. You know, when I was reading the book, I kept thinking, 
all these things you witnessed and you've seen and you've reported on, what effect, I, you know, you've talked about what, what does it mean for you and who, who will affect you, but how did it affect you seeing some of these tragedies, horrific tragedies and scenes? And also, you know, just wondering how that affected you. You know, you would think about people who witness things like that, you know, they, with PTSD and things like that. How did it affect you personally? Well, um, you know, journalists, a, a firefighter or a police officer might see one of these events of this magnitude in their entire mm -hmm. career. Reporters, cameramen, producers, editors specifically go to these things one after another every time right. one happens. And I'm so glad you asked this question because I'm, I tell young journalists that they have to take care of themselves. Right. To me, and I write about this in the book, empathy is the greatest gift that a writer can have because if we have empathy we can mm -hmm. put on the clothes of the people that we're writing about and understand them better but it's a double-edged sword if you have that kind of empathy you're also taking on board all this mm -hmm. grief and pain and Becky it was years after 9-11 that I realized that I had PTSD from standing there when the towers came down and it had led to a great deal of anxiety and depression over the years. Uh, and I got help for that, and I got yeah. much better about that. But I tell young journalists today, you've got to take care of yourself. You can't do what I did, and that is think, well, I'm a professional. I'll just, you know, motor on through all of these yeah. things. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Not, not if you're a human being. Right. Not if you have empathy. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I love the way you did organize this book, you know, talking about the virtues and the values and, 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 so and, e and even a little bit of the vices <laughs> that come along with that. But, you know, the different sections, there are like 19 sections within the book. And, and as you've spoken about the gallantry, you know, with, with the first section of the book and talking about the, the FDNY after 9-11. But um, and then I love number three, the selflessness and Paulette um, was Shank. a tram. Shank. Shank. Paulette Shank. I'm Shank, sorry. Yes. I can't read my own writing. Um, a nurse in Iraq. She was a lieutenant colonel. What an incredible story. She about was her. Uh, amazing. Oh, uh, and, yeah. and one of those people in the book who is not famous but really deserves your attention. She was a combat nurse at a field hospital in Iraq. And one day this young man came in, Kenny Lyon, he's a young Marine, he'd been hit by a mortar, he was bleeding from three arteries, he was very nearly dead by the time he got mm -hmm. into the OR. They started putting blood into him, they had five surgeons working on him at once, and I was in the OR watching this. Wow. Two surgeons at his head, two in his, uh, one in his chest and two at his legs. They had to take one of his legs because it was just too heavily damaged to save. But all of the fresh blood in the blood bank pumped through this young man's heart and out onto the floor of the OR before they could seal up all the wounds. And a nurse came in and said, we're out of fresh blood. And the surgeons looked up like, well, what are we going to do? Well, Paulette Shank, who ran the ORs, at this Air Force Field Hospital said, I'll get more. And she rushed out of the tent. I mean, this is a tent we're working in. 
And um, I thought, more? There isn't any more. What are you talking about? And so I chased her out of the tent to find out what she was up to. By the time I got to the next tent, which was the blood bank, she had already opened her arm mm -hmm. and was bleeding into bags. And they were taking those bags into Kenny Lyon, which gave enough time for them to put out an all call on the base. And a hundred people came running wow. to give blood. Yeah. And the surgery went on for five hours and they saved his life. I met him months later at Walter Reed in Washington, and I said, Kenny, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing great. And I said, great? And he said, yeah, I'm alive. It's all yeah. easy from here. Yeah. I thought that was the most incredible story. But, you know, that's what I loved about all these stories about these different individuals who you have witnessed this, and sharing it with the reader, it makes you want to, when you meet these people through your eyes, it makes us all want to be better people. All these different things. Oh, I hope so. Oh my gosh. But even Bruce Springsteen, in, you, in that chapter, you talk about authenticity. I can't think of a more authentic performer, songwriter, and how he shares his experience through music and words. What but, I learned yeah. about Bruce, yeah. getting to know Bruce, was that it, for him it was not about the money. It was not about stardom. He could have done without either of those things, although he didn't mind them. Right. Um, but he was a fountainhead of creativity. Yeah. He wrote music and continues to write music and continues to tour today because he can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. He can't stop himself. Right. If one person came to a Bruce Springsteen concert, he'd play for four hours right. because he doesn't know how to do anything right. else. Right. And that's why I called that chapter authenticity because there's a lot of artificiality in our world oh, today, yeah. right? right. Uh, particularly, I think, in the entertainment industry. And Bruce struck me as such an authentic artist yeah. that yeah. I really wanted to write about that yeah. sensibility in him. Yeah. And then I love the, the one on gratitude. Hmm. And I, I that's just my little biography in I the know, of the but, book. But about when you were 15 years old <laughs> and you lied, <laughs> but your mom helped you. But you got a job as a copy boy um, at the um, Lubbock Avalanche Journal. I uh, my yeah. career in search of the truth began right. with a lie. Um, <laughs> I wanted to. Yeah. De I desperately wanted to work at the Avalanche Journal because I, at that point in my life, I wanted to be a photographer, a still right. photographer. Yeah. And I thought if I could get a job as a copy boy, then I could parlay that into a job with the photographers at the paper. Yeah. So uh, I lied about my age because they only hired kids that were 16, 16. and above, and I was 15. And my co-conspirator, mom, would drop me a couple of blocks from the paper so that nobody could see I wasn't driving. And I went to work as a copy boy. Yeah. It, was, it was wonderful. That newsroom was the most exciting yeah. place I'd ever seen. And about a year into it, the executive editor of the paper, a guy named Dave Knapp, big barrel-chested guy with a silver crew cut and kind of Marine Corps bearing, walked into the wire room when I was working on my high school homework, and he said, do you want to be a reporter? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I never gave it any thought. He said, well, do you or don't you? And I said, well, sure, I guess. <laughs> and he picked me up out of the wire room, sat me in front of a typewriter, which I had no idea how to operate, and I've been a reporter ever since. Yeah. And you started with Obits, right? I started with Obits. That's how those green cub reporters <laughs> start right. because it's pretty simple. Yeah. 
and the subject of the piece is probably not going to complain. Yeah. And so um, those are just checking the facts with the family yeah, and, right. and with the funeral home, and they're about 200 words. Yeah. But over time, they started giving me other assignments, right. and I, yeah. I learned the trade. Yeah. Is, there, is there one story you reported on when you were writing or, or doing work for the Avalanche Journal? Is there one one story that really stands out for you that oh, you that you, you know or? there was a story. Um, Lubbock, Texas, is uh, the largest cotton producing region in the world, and so it's all about cotton. The thing about cotton, uh, Becky, is that once that cotton bulb blooms and the cotton's exposed to the elements, mm -hmm. you have to harvest that really quickly, right. or the quality of the fiber will degrade in the weather pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So there was one year that a farmer uh, was injured uh, during his harvest. His whole crop was in the field. Mm -hmm. He couldn't harvest it, so all of his neighbors brought their combines over and harvested his entire farm in one day and gave him all of his cotton so that it wouldn't be ruined. Yeah. And you know, those are the kinds of people yeah. I grew up with right. uh, in Lubbock, Texas. My parents uh, grew up in the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. My father uh, was a, a B-17 bombardier over Germany in World War II. My mother built airplanes back here wow. while he was flying over there. Wow. And they were just greatest generation folks and they and their friends were the people I grew up with yeah. and you learn perseverance and yeah, optimism right. from people like that. So your mom was a Rosie the Riveter. Yes, yeah, she, she was. was. Yeah. Um, and then the 17th section of the book was Valor. Yes. And what an incredible story about Captain Mark Rapico. Yes. Yeah. Captain, He's a Marine. Captain yeah. in the Marine Corps. Marine Corps, right. Um, this was a guy who desperately yeah. wanted to be a Marine because he was a Frenchman. Right. Rapico. And, from Mississippi, though. And, well, he, <laughs> he went to college in Mississippi. Mississippi, right. But if Mark Rapico wanted to do anything in life other than be a Marine officer, he didn't mention it to anybody. He was completely focused on joining the Marines. He got U.S. citizenship specifically because only U.S. citizens can be commissioned as officers in the military. Mm -hmm. And then he led a, uh, a, a company of Marines in um, Ramadi in Iraq. Now, Ramadi was sort of the capital of the insurgency. Um, they were hitting us with IEDs and gunning for our guys every single day. Mm -hmm. uh, the unit that I was with, that Rapico was with, uh, was taking the highest number of casualties in Iraq at the time. And um, Mark Rapico led from the front, led from the front. He knew, he understood that if he put himself in harm's way, if he bravely went forward, then all of his Marines would have the confidence to do the same. And tragically in that story, um, while 60 Minutes was there with the, with the group, uh, Mark Rapico was coming back in his Humvee one day uh, to the base and uh, was rammed by a uh, vehicle-borne IED and, uh, and was killed. And I know there was one on arrogance, so we talk a little bit about vice, about George, Georgia Tennant and the whole torture situation that was happening after 9-11. So that was incredible. And then I love the way you talked about in the last section to young journalists and, and saying that no democracy um, can, be, can be without journalism. 
and how important that is. And the fourth estate, and I know you, 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 you stress this point a lot in the book about how important that we have the press, well, that we I, have journalists. I think this is exactly what we need yeah. to be hearing right, right about now. There are two chapters that are the most important to me, the first and the last. Mm -hmm. I, wanted, I, I struggled mightily to try to pay adequate tribute to the firefighters of New York mm -hmm. on the day of 9-11. But that last chapter to a young journalist is so important to me because as we write in the book and as you mentioned, there's no democracy without journalism. Mm -hmm. The founders gave us the power, the power over the government, we the people. Well, there's only one way we can exercise that power and that is with reliable, independent information. Mm -hmm. And so right now, we live in a time where we have moved from the information age to the disinformation age, and I think that's exactly where journalism and journalists come in to perform the function that the founders always had in mind. Right, and to have a president that calls the press the enemy of the people, mm -hmm. when to stand up, we you know, reliable, truthful, reputable, and then having having people who check the facts and making sure before anything is published or broadcast is that these are a reliable reporter that's doing the, 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 this report. So. Madison wrote that freedom of speech and freedom of the press are the rights that guarantee all the others. The founders knew that if we could read what we wanted to read, write what we wanted to write, say what we wanted mm -hmm. to say, then all of the rights that Madison put in the Bill of Rights would be safe. It's just that important. Yeah. You know, I, I love the way, too, in the book, um, because you've won many awards in, in uh, television journalism. Uh, I get keep. credit for the work of others, but thank you. But yes. you do. But that's what you do. It's, it's, it's a team player that you always talk about everyone else behind the scenes who make all this possible. But, you know, Peabody's and Edward R. Murrow and, you know, all the different awards that you've won, um, including the Walter Cronkite Excellence Award, so a fellow Texan. Um, but... That's something wonderful about what you do. You're not taking credit because you know it takes a village to, to build these stories and to broadcast them and I, to get them I, out to people. I say in the book um, that I have never won without cameramen, sound women, producers, executive producers, associate producers. It's a team sport in television yeah, in particular. Right. The, writing the book was a lonely experience. I'm just locked in a room just typing away. Yeah, but, right. uh, but in television, it's a big team sure, sport. Right. And so uh, it's so important to keep all of that in mind. Yeah. And I know I've seen you in a few, few interviews talking about just recently about you know, I was so sorry to see you removed as anchor of the CBS Evening News. And there's reasons behind that, and that you spoke out about all the difficulties that were happening at CBS. Well, yeah. I think um, your viewers know, as you do, from, from reading uh, in the popular press, we'd had some real difficult years at CBS News and at CBS writ large. Mm -hmm. And now those executives who were mishandling those situations, they're all gone. Uh, CBS took decisive action. We have a brand new chairman of the whole corporation, Joe Ionello, who's a visionary CEO. I've known him for years. Yeah. We have finally appointed the first woman 
to be president of the news division. I can't believe in 2019 Yay. we've just appointed the <laughs> yeah. first one. But that's Susan Zarinsky, and uh, Susan's been there 40 years. Mm -hmm. I've known her for 30. She has CBS News DNA, yeah. and that's a great choice. And then finally, we have uh, my friend Bill Owens is the new executive producer of 60 Minutes, Minutes. and Bill yeah. and I have literally been in combat together in Iraq. and. Uh, Bill used to work for me. He was one of my producers, oh, that's uh, cool. and now I work for him. So yeah. you know what they say about being good to the young people on the way up because you're going to meet them on the way down. Well, that seems to be happening. <laughs> that's great. So Scott, tell us tell us what's next because you enjoyed so much at writing this book and. Um, can we expect something else or maybe some photography for I, you? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> yeah. um, I have started working on a photography book. Okay. Um, my joy and love of photography didn't end with that day that I was made a reporter uh, <laughs> yeah. in that surprising moment. So one of the great things about being at 60 Minutes is I travel to the most remote places on earth, yeah. meet the most, you know, the rarest cultures on earth and people and animals and all of that. And so I've been very busy with my photography for decades. And I finally, I think I have a nice portfolio that I might make okay. a book out of. So we're going to try to get that on your bookshelf here. Okay. That would be, well, you have to promise to come back. Absolutely, I will. You okay. bet. If you'll have me, I'll, oh, I'll be here. Hands down. So I end these interviews with a quick quiz. So as, as a bookseller, and um, I know you as a book lover, these are, these are sort of a lightning round. So whatever comes to mind, there are no wrong answers. So do you remember your favorite book when you were a boy? Something Wicked This Way Comes oh, by Ray Bradbury. Bradbury. An Illinois native, yeah. Okay, do you remember something when you were at Coronado High School in Lubbock that maybe has stayed with you to this day? Marjorie Wilson. Oh, yeah. My journalism teacher. Okay. This was one of those teachers, all too rare, who was on fire yeah. to teach. Oh, and wonderful. she made us believe that journalism was the highest and best calling that anyone could aspire to. Mm -hmm. And that Marjorie Wilson is why I'm sitting in this chair. Okay. And how about um, the journalist you admire most, alive or dead? I know that's hard to pick Boy, that, um, that covers a lot. Um, I, uh, among my colleagues at CBS News, there are many to admire. Bob Simon in particular, mm -hmm. the late Bob Simon, yeah. uh, taught me what it means to be a war correspondent and the risks that must be taken. And he also taught me a lot about writing, not because he was a patient mentor. Bob really wasn't the type, mm -hmm. but I went to school on every script that he wrote. In fact, I would get a transcript so I could see not how it sounded on television, but what does it look like on the page? How are the mm -hmm. sentences constructed? What metaphors has he used? All that kind of thing. And I studied Bob's work a lot, yeah. um, and I'm very grateful to him for providing such yeah. a terrific example. Okay, a book that you've read that you've been an evangelist for that you could not tell enough people they had to read it. Conscious Business. Oh, yeah. Conscious Business is a book about human interaction that is masquerading as a business book. Um, and I was, it was recommended to me by a friend, and it's the only book other than The Grapes of Wrath which I bought 25 or 30 copies of, stacked them up in my office, and every time someone came in, which was frequently, with a problem that they were having with a coworker, okay. I gave them oh, a copy yeah. of the book. 
Grapes of Wrath is a book that I give to young journalists as a gift, and I gave one to Pope Francis as well. Um, it's my favorite book of all time. If I had to be exiled somewhere with a single book, uh, I yeah. would reread that for the twelfth time. Okay. Um, I am an enormous Steinbeck fan, and the, what I love about that book is that, yes, it's about the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, and all of that, but it's really a parable about all dispossessed people of all time. If you change the names to Syrian names, then the book was written about yesterday right. in Syria. Yeah. And so I really love that book. And when our foreign correspondents, when I was the managing editor, when our foreign correspondents did really great work with refugees and that sort of thing, I'd send them a copy yeah. of The Grapes oh, of Wrath. Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, if you could have a dinner with three authors or journalists, alive or dead, and yourself, who would those three be? Alive or dead? Uh, well, my friend Tom Friedman, uh, okay. I would sit at the uh, head of the, uh, right next to me, because every time I speak to Tom, uh, he reveals something to me that I had never, <laughs> never crossed my mind. Yeah. Right. Um, John McPhee, huge fan of John's. In fact, I mention him in the book uh, because he, to me, is among the very best writing nonfiction in a literary style, and John Steinbeck. Oh, and if, the, if I can only have three, I'd do those three. Okay, and yeah. I'll be under the table just listening. Okay. And do you remember something you read with your kids when they were young that you would curl up and read? I remember a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, a book called The Book of Virtues. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I read to both my son and my daughter. My son is now a human rights lawyer, so there must have been, <laughs> there must have been something there. Way to go, Dan. Um, yeah. the, uh, the Best Beak of Boonaroon Bay okay. was a book about birds in Australia having a contest for which one had the most perfect beak. And of course it turned out that all their beaks were different and were suited to different tasks, right? Yeah. So we're all different and, and yet we all yeah. have our purpose. Right. And that was the lovely story oh, there. Um, good At various ages, Good Night Moon oh, and all sure. of that, we yeah. read a lot. Yeah. And my daughter did not like putting herself to sleep, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She didn't like the kiss good night and now she's lying there awake. So we always read to her yeah. until she was asleep uh -huh. and, uh, and then tried to get out of the bed without, without waking her up. <laughs> right. Perfect. And what are you reading now? Anything or something recently? I'm reading uh, Rick Atkinson's The British Are Coming. Yeah. I read and admired greatly his trilogy on World War II. Now he's embarking on this trilogy. Um, mm -hmm and uh, on, on the American Revolution, and the first book just came out in competition with my own, so I'm very angry with Rick about that. <laughs> but uh, that, and I'm desperately waiting for the final LBJ in Robert oh, Caro's oh, series. Yes, yes, yeah, fantastic. Okay, A plus on that quiz. Thank you. But Scott, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to sit down and talk to you about this fabulous book, and Thank you so much for writing it, and please promise you'll come back and see us for the I next one. absolutely will. I thank okay. you for your, the invitation. Okay. I am really grateful to you. Great conversation with Scott Pelley. We all know him from 60 Minutes and a CBS News correspondent and anchor of the CBS Evening News. This is his debut book. It's called A Truth Worth Telling, A Reporter's Search for Meaning in the Story of Our Time. Incredible stories you will never forget. Thanks for joining me on Authors Revealed.